All right, well, we are going to... Uh, we're going to get started here, and again, I just want to reiterate, if there's any, any open seating in between you guys, if you guys can just squish in and make sure that everybody's got a seat, especially now that the kids are gone, we might have a little more, uh, little more space. Uh, at the first service, uh, Troy confessed, what, what would happen if somebody tripped a kid as they're walking by? And I was like, really, Troy? That's what you think? <laughs> he blamed it on me, but we, we both laughed about it. And we would never do that. It was just kind of funny. They're, they're susceptible as they're running by us, but... <laughs> Great. Now next week, people are going to be like, ah. Um, I'm glad that uh, uh, y'all are here and, and we get to continue in this series, this church detox series. I grew up in a Baptist church, and there's nothing wrong with the denomination or anything like that, but the particular church and the practice that we had, I definitely picked up some toxins along the way, things that I started to believe about God, things that I started to believe about me as a Christian, things that I started to believe about the church that gathered that we need to then have this like flush and say, let's get back to, to what it is that we are truly being called about. And so uh, I'm excited that we get to, to do this, and I'm sure that many of you also have some of these little things, whether you're a part of a church or not, that you pick up along the way, and we say, let's, let's flush those things out. So today, we're specifically going to talk about how the church behaves. Now, I, I, I know what you're thinking. Uh, you're probably thinking like, oh, great, I, I needed a good, healthy dose of guilt so tell me what I'm supposed to be doing because I'm doing everything wrong or tell you that I'm supposed to be, you know, the things I'm supposed to be doing morally, uh, ethically, the, the, all of the disciplines I should be doing. That's a lot of times what we start to think of, I think, coming from some of that, that toxic belief system when it comes to church is that we've imposed this moral agenda that is the set of rules that we're supposed to uh, abide by. And so I hope that by the time we're done here, that we're going to reframe the way we think about our behavior, because it matters, but it's not meant to be something that's driven by uh, guilt or fear or shame. And so we are going to start right out of the gate and just answer the question as far as what is the church to be doing? Oh, I was going to read this great. That Troy used this on his first week, and I just loved it because I think it's appropriate to what we're talking about today as well. It says, many churches have forgotten why they exist, namely to do good deeds in the name of Jesus so that people will be moved to give God glory. And when a church forgets that it exists for others and for God, it becomes ingrown and self-satisfied and can go on year after year like a social club with a religious veneer. Now, that's scary. Uh, I, I don't want to be a part of that. And so I think it's worthwhile conversation that we have to try to move on from just being a religious social club that pats ourselves on the back, but actually is something that is vibrant and alive because of what God is doing and what he's calling us to. And so we're going to start right at the end and say the church is to make disciples. Uh, he gave us a great commission telling us to go into all the nation and make disciples, teaching them to obey all the commands that I have taught you. And I think that this is one of those things that it's like, absolutely, that's, there it is. That's what we are to be about. But I think we've brought along some toxic thinking when it comes to why we would do that, how we would do that. And so we're going uh, to tackle some of those questions uh, today. Uh, we're going to go through a bunch of scripture. And so for those of you that are kind of nerdy types, 
that like to take notes and put your fingers in, in the Bible and make, you know, you maybe fold over things. And if you don't have a Bible, uh, you, you know, you, you could raise your hand or just go get one. Just go, I mean, they're, they're around the room. Just, just go get one. It's okay if you get up out of your seat. People will be all right if you have to tuck your knees in. Because uh, we're going to be looking, these are the scriptures we're going to be looking at. And so I wanted to give those to you up front uh, just so you can kind of be ready. Uh, and uh, one little comment I made at the first service, I feel like I should probably make it uh, here. Uh, Tom Gavick is using his iPad, and that is encouraged. I like that. You know, I often have my Bible on my phone, and so I'll be sitting in the front row, and people maybe think I'm texting or doing something, but I actually have, I'm looking at the scripture up there. Now, if you're playing Angry Birds, well, maybe, you know, maybe there's some sharpening that needs to happen. So you're like, okay, come on. But yeah, but use your, use your phone, use your iPad, use whatever. Uh, uh, we encourage that here. We like that. Okay, so we're going to uh, jump in right away and saying, how does the church behave when it talks about making disciples? But in order to get going with this, I needed to kind of like just give you a little window into, into me and into my life and, and specifically into my, uh, uh, my wedding when it comes to answering this question. Why does the church make disciples? So this is uh, our wedding day, and this is my wife, who is stunning already, uh, but then she was getting ready for our wedding and had this team of people that were helping her prepare and get ready for this ceremony. And this is a friend of hers uh, from Northern California that was putting uh, makeup on her and, and just, uh, again, just preparing. There's a lot of preparation that I had to do for this wedding. Uh, this next picture, i got to warn you, was 10 years earlier at my sister's wedding. Come on. <laughs> it was 1995. <laughs> Grunge was king. <laughs> and somebody should have been helping me prepare for my sister's wedding and said, get a haircut. It was, yeah, I, uh, I was, you know, just learning how to play guitar. Uh, I was listening to Nirvana and Pearl Jam, and so I was trying to be Kurt Cobain. And, uh, yeah, it's not, it's not right. Somebody, somebody should have loved me well enough to say something. <laughs> And here is kind of right, right before, like, you know, the, the, the final product of getting my wife ready. I mean, she looks amazing. She looks radiant. She was gorgeous. And this is her friend, Randy. It's a girl named Randy. Uh, she, it looks like she's hiding from the camera. She was weeping. She got so overwhelmed by being a part of the preparation process. It's not even, you know, her wedding, but she got so overwhelmed by being a part of just preparing that it hit her. And she just started to weep as she's trying to curl Harper's. And look, Harper's like laughing at her, but. <laughs> uh, but it was this beautiful picture of just being a part of, of this ceremony and getting ready for it. Now here's, uh, Troy was the best man in our wedding. And so here's Troy and Trish and the girls. I didn't, I didn't warn the girls I was gonna be showing this picture, but. Haley and Allie are sitting here in the front row. I mean, and that's them in the front here. They were, how old were you guys there? Seven, six, seven, yeah. Just, it's just hilarious just to see now, you know, they're all, you know, grown up and, and gorgeous. And uh, so there was the, the Murphys and us at our, at our wedding. 
Now, this was, a, uh, this was kind of funny. We, we, uh, you know, we, we, we borrowed somebody's car to drive away from. It was this kind of wealthy friend of ours that let us borrow an Aston Martin to drive away in. And, like, look at how unbelievable Harper looks. She looks gorgeous. And what am I looking at? <laughs> the car. <laughs> I'm like, come on, you thick-headed numbskull. But uh, I, honestly, I was, I was so freaked out about driving that car. I've never driven anything with that much horsepower. And you could tell by the windows, it was pouring. This was in California, but it was like torrential rain. And I was so afraid of breaking the wheels loose on that thing. I'm, I was checking everything. It was a stick. So I was just trying to make sure I didn't, like, you know, break this Aston Martin in, in, the, in the rain. But anyway, uh, how cool is it to get to drive away from that, just this beautiful ceremony. So here was me in the ceremony waiting. Uh, we, our wedding was gorgeous. It was, we were in, it was in the round. So it would be as if we were in the center of the room, and there was kind of this X of aisles that went through on, kind of on all sides. And so I was, you know, I knew she was going to be coming down like this one aisle, and I, I was just so filled with anticipation and expectation. And uh, for those of you that have seen me, you know, speak and talk about my boys, you know that I can't, I can't talk about my, my boys without just breaking down and crying. And, and similarly here, at my wedding, I was a wreck. From the moment that I was just sitting there already, I mean, just waiting for her to come down, I could feel, you know, just emotion welling up in me. And then when it came time to... to uh, say our vows, I, 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 couldn't even, I couldn't even get through them. I'm trying to say these things, stumbling through them, because uh, it, was, it was so heightened, the, this significance of what was happening, the significance of what we were saying to each other and what it meant. Uh, you've heard it said so many times that you, you get all dressed up and prepare for a wedding ceremony, but you don't just prepare for a wedding, you prepare for a marriage this ceremony signifies something moving forward, this union of, of coming together. And when Harper and I got engaged, we had a, a short engagement. We met and married in 10 months and had a three-month engagement. I don't recommend that. <laughs> I'm glad we did. I'm glad we did. Uh, but, you know, our first year of marriage, we're still learning who each other is, but... When we were engaged, when we said, yes, this is going to happen, we are going to get married, I love you, you love me, we're going to make this permanent, uh, my behavior started to change. Uh, appropriately, it started to change. When I said that I am now betrothed to my soon-to-be wife, I stopped asking other girls out. Yeah, is he, <laughs> yeah thanks. <laughs> It seems silly, but it was true. I, had, I said, I am no longer going to do that because I am going to be with the one I love. I started to change the way I approached my finances because I had to start thinking about things with us together now getting ready for this marriage. We started to think about where we worked, how we interacted with others. There were certain friendships and certain relationships that we had to say, I'm sorry, our relationship is going to look different now because this one is taking priority over that. I still love you and I wish the best for you, but we're not going to be able to interact the same way because I'm giving my heart and my time to my soon-to-be bride. 
So preparation. There was so much that we, we were being prepared for for that wedding ceremony. Now I want to uh, take this further. I want to look at a scripture. Look at Revelation 19, starting with uh, the middle of verse 6. It says, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him the glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linens, bright and clean, was given her to wear. And the fine linens stand for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. So this whole idea of, uh, of discipleship has more to do with we as the bride of Christ. There's several uh, scripture references that talk about and, and make reference to us being the bride of Christ. It never actually uses those specific words, but in this scripture and several others, that we, the church, are getting ready to be united with the one who has called us out as his one and only, has called us out to be united in him for something that is significant for eternity. And so we start to change our behavior as we are looking forward to this union, to this relationship with the one who has called us out. Not out of guilt or fear or shame, but out of love, out of significance, out of hope, out of great expectation and anticipation of, of what is to come uh, in this relationship. And we see this uh, spelled out even further in John. Now, this whole idea of preparation we are preparing ourselves as God's people. We are preparing and changing our behavior appropriately for this relationship. But it's not just, I think sometimes we view God as, as uh, you know, we view the whole Trinity as, you know, crossing his arms and going, well, we'll see. And kind of just waiting to see if we get it right, see if they prepare enough. But here we see in John, he's preparing too. It says that, do not let your hearts be troubled, for you believe in God. You said yes to the proposal. It's as if, if, if Christ is proposing to us and inviting us into this wedding supper, we said yes, those of us that believe in him. It says, my father's house has many rooms, and if that were not so, wouldn't I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me. We will be united as one, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. And Thomas said to him, I love Thomas, I relate to Thomas. There's a little bit of rebellion in Thomas where he says like, oh, you rose from the dead, prove it. Let me, let me see. I gotta touch, I gotta feel, I gotta know. So Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to me but the Father. No one comes to the Father except through me. And if you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do, not, you do know him and have seen him. 
Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. And Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And how can you say, show us the Father? Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence, the stuff that we've been doing, our behaviors, all the work that we've been doing, Believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me and will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father, and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And you may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. If you love me, keep my commands. Again, I've heard that verse, verse 15, several times. And I heard it differently. I heard it as, well, if you really love me, then you'll keep my commands. Like this, like, you know, hand on hips, like, yeah, well. But now, again, taking it in the context of we are preparing ourselves to present ourselves as the church, as the bride of Christ, and he is preparing a place for us. And he says, if you love me, then you'll keep my commands. You're going to stop asking other girls out. You're going to start to think a little differently about what it means for us to be together. Start to think differently about this relationship that we're trying to move towards. Because we've, we've exchanged already that we love each other. So we're, we're moving into that. It takes on a very different, you know, it lands on my ears much differently that way than just the finger pointing like, well, if you really love me, then you'd keep my commands. It's not that at all. It's we are moving together towards something. And that's why our behaviors matter. I jumped around. Okay, so how does the church make disciples? How do we actually going about doing this? We're going to jump into uh, uh, Ephesians here, so if you have a Bible, you can turn there. I'm actually going to jump forward. Let's start with verse 11. It was he who gave some to be apostles, and some to be prophets, and some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. I thought it was important that we expanded this chapter because even this is this, you know, the sign that we made is 100% true, and I believe that. But if you notice, it's actually comma to equip his people for works of service. There's a whole thing that set this up in terms of who he's called and, and what we're supposed to be doing as those that have called. To prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God, and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Okay, time out. We got to pause for just a second. I, again, this is another one of those things where growing up in the church, I've read the scripture a lot of times, and I've never really stopped to think about what that is saying. The whole measure of the fullness of Christ. I mean, that sounds very daunting. And, and, and more specifically, what does that even mean? The whole measure of the fullness of Christ. What, what is that? So if you, if you don't get anything 
out of this message today, I hope you walk away with this, okay? So if you got a pen and paper, I want you to take notes. We see in, uh, in Scripture uh, several times in several places this whole idea of the role of headship. Christ is the head of the church. And uh, submission. There's a submissive role and a headship role. And so we see that God is the head, plays this headship role over Christ, who plays this submission role to God the Father. And then we see Christ is the head of the church. The church submits to Christ as the head. And then this expands forward to uh, husbands play the headship role to their wives as a submissive role. Now, again, that's not trying to say men and women, but this role of husband and, and wife. Now, the thing that's very interesting about all of those is that Christ plays both roles. He is submitting himself to the Father, and yet he is the head of the church. And so when we talk about the attaining the, the, uh, the fullness of the measure of, of, of Christ, it's fully submitted, fully submitting ourselves to the, to the, Christ fully submitted himself to God the Father, and yet fully realizing and actualizing and using the authority that was given to him. Now, when you have being able to play both roles, you would never abuse that headship role because you understand what it means to submit. You, you can play both roles. Remember John Dixon was here and he talked about how Christ has the capacity to fully exercise the muscle of moral conviction and yet fully exercise the, the muscle of compassion? Very similarly, in the same way, Christ is fully submitted to God the Father and yet fully utilizing the authority that was given to him by God. And so when we talk about as we grow into the likeness of Christ, that we may be fully submitted and yet fully utilizing the authority that has been given to us in Christ. So that's the direction that we're trying to go in terms of what kind of disciple are we trying to make. That's the model. Um, I skipped a little bit. Start with 15. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body is joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. You've been hearing this language a lot about you are important because you play a part. And as we are together trying to move forward in preparing ourselves, it's, it's, a, it's a mystery that uh, we together, all of us as individuals, make up this bride of Christ because it's not just that I am moving towards a union with Christ in and of myself. It's that we are together playing a part that makes up this bride that is getting ready. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. And one little comment about the Gentiles, this wasn't meant to be a race card or just segregating a certain people group. But it was a generalization talking about people that don't believe in Christ. They're the people that have, that have not accepted or said yes to the proposal of, of Christ's invitation to the wedding ceremony. So, again, the idea of our behaviors when we're engaged, 
we're going to hold each other to a different standard of engagement. I'm not necessarily going to expect, uh, you know, my, my, uh, a friend of mine that may not be engaged to anybody, if I start telling him, you got to stop asking out other girls. It's like, why? I'm not engaged. I'm not doing anything. But for those that have accepted the call, accepted the invitation of Christ to, to, to come along with him in this union that's moving towards something eternal and said yes to that, then that's when we have the opportunity to say, okay, we got a lot to do. We got a lot to get ready for. There's a lot of things that we got to move towards. And one of them is you got to stop asking out other girls. So 17, so I tell you this. And insist on in the Lord that you must no longer live as Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality, to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. You, however, did not come to know Christ this way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You said yes to the proposal. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off old self, which is being completed by its deceitful, being corrupted, sorry, can't read, it's hard to read, by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in the righteousness and holiness. In true righteousness and holiness. So here's some of that language again that's very similar to Revelation. Remember what righteousness was? The righteous acts of God's holy people were the fine linens that were being put on his bride to be presented to Christ. So again, here's hopefully that when you now read this, it's going to hit your your ears and your heart differently. Because it's not out of finger pointing, but it's saying we are putting on these fine linens to be united with Christ. Therefore, each of you, so here's some of that, that the directive of we're getting ready, so we got to change some of our behavior, put off falsehood, and speak truthfully to, uh, I got to read it up here. It's too small back there. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands. That is, that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building up others according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Quick comment about that. I think this is one of those verses that gets abused. And I'm not, I'm not trying to be a proponent of, like, swearing or cussing, but I will be the first to admit, you get me on a basketball court or on a golf course, if they don't come out of my mouth, they're rolling around in there. And I don't think that this is what it's talking about, because let's be honest, those are cultural things. It, nowhere in the Bible does it say, don't say these specific four-letter words. Now, I, I'm, again, I'm not trying to promote, I think it's a good idea that we stay away from those in terms of uh, just kind of the heart behind it. But can you imagine if I had said, I am engaged to my wife and we're going to get married, and I started to gossip about her, or I started to speak negatively 
about her character or I was asking out other girls. That's wrong. That's not right. That is unwholesome. That is bad talk coming out of my mouth. I need somebody to come alongside me and say, hey, hey, don't, you, you need to be building up. As you are preparing to be united, you need to be uh, stepping into that, not trying to break it apart and move away from it. So it's not just the moral agenda of saying, stop swearing, stop saying bad words. It's the, the motivation of the heart as to why I want to lean into this relationship and build it up, not tear it down. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Uh, one quick comment about that. Again, this is another one of those verses that I think I'd always read, and I read it with the twinge of the Holy Spirit being so just disgusted and dissatisfied with me. Oh, gosh, I can't believe Bobby did that. Ugh. And grieving in that kind of way. But I think a lot of times we strip God of his emotions, and the only thing we see is his anger or his judgment. So again, I, to this day, I say things that hurt my wife and have even made her cry before. And, oh, it kills me. And I, and I want to make it right, you know, and not, not just to try to offer her a bad answer so that she stops crying, but to say, I am so sorry that I hurt you. I never want to hurt you again. And to see grief in that kind of way, where there's kind of that the healthy guilt that moves us closer together, that builds bond, that says, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to change my behavior because I love you that much and I want to move into this. And then it says, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Key word here is to get rid of it. Don't mask it and try to pretend that it doesn't exist. You have to deal with it. And part of dealing with it is part of this idea of making disciples of I have to be willing to say, I am struggling this right now and I have this anger inside of me and I've got to get it out appropriately and I need others around me to help me do that. If I just try to bottle it up and say, nope, I'm not angry, I'm good. Uh, I don't have any rage in me at all. It will come out, and it will come out negatively, and it will come out destructively. So when it says, get rid of all bitterness, it's not saying, pretend like it doesn't exist. It's saying, rid yourself of it appropriately so that you can then be filled with the things that are moving you towards this relationship. And then be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. This is my son, Joel. This is when he turned four, uh, just in January. Hence the uh, birthday crown. Uh, and just to give you some, like, 
context of like the personality differences of, of, of my kids. Uh, this, and here's Ethan. <laughs> yeah, I think we had just given him like a powdered donut and then said smile. So he had like a mouthful and just went, ah. Uh, my kids are awesome, but you definitely see their personalities. But Joel, this is a very true story. This was just two weeks ago. Right after Troy had just talked about Christ as the head of the church. Uh, the, the kids' ministry had, had um, told the story of the woman at the well and how uh, Christ forgave her of her sins. And uh, just I, leaving church, packed up the kids, brought home. Harper had to go to the store to get some stuff. I get home, and I put a loaf of bread out on the counter, and I'm cutting it up, and I make peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for the kids. And I turn my back for a moment, and Tia, our dog, pulls the whole loaf of bread off the counter, walks right in front of me with it in her mouth, and just sits down and starts, just starts chowing down on it. Man, I just lit up. I was so angry. I, I just, I was yelling at her. I was like, no, drop it, whatever. I had to snatch it out of her mouth, and I waited till Joel wasn't looking, and I threw the bread back at her, because I just was like, Argh! just mad. I just was so, oh, I was so ticked off. And, uh, yeah, you know, so I grab the bread, I throw it away, I go back into the kitchen, I'm trying to find something else to, you know, make for the kids now. And Joel, true story, Joel, he comes up into the kitchen, and he does this. He goes, Dad, remember? And he said it kind of, you know, he didn't quite, it wasn't super clear the way he said it, but remember, he just said something like, remember, she forgave? And, and I was like, oh, is, is that what you guys learned about, buddy? Did you learn about forgiveness in your class? And he goes, yeah. So maybe you should forgive Tia. <laughs> no joke. This is a true story. This, I mean, this is word for word. What is this happening? So then he goes, so why don't you go over to her and say, I'm sorry for speaking so madly to you. <laughs> and so I wish, you know, Harper, nobody was home. I wish somebody was there because I had this like dilemma in my head of like, okay, do I like allow myself to keep feeling what I'm feeling towards the dog? Do I try to use this as a parenting moment? Do I, you know, so I just go, you know what, buddy? That's, that's a really good idea. You should... So I kind of swallowed my pride and I wish somebody could have been there to see me as I walk over to my dog and go, I'm sorry for speaking so madly to you. Will you forgive me? And, and he goes, she does forgive you. And, <laughs> I was like, how could you be mad after that? It was, just, it was just so cool to see that my four-year-old grasped this idea of forgiving one another and didn't just keep it in the context of a story, but actually applied it, you know, to his, he, he parented me in that moment, but oh my gosh, it was, it was absolutely hilarious. But how true in, in uh, you know, as we forgive one another, we're going to have to offer each other some grace and forgiveness because just like in my marriage right now, I screw up and I do things that I don't want to that take away from the vows that I said to her when we got married that contradict those things that move away from being connected. And so I need forgiveness and in the same way, I need to offer forgiveness. That doesn't mean that we turn a blind eye to what it is that we're trying to move towards. We uphold the things that are going to be building each other up 
in uh, establishing this, uh, this relationship. So a couple of little comments about when do we actually get to do this? Because, again, so many times we try to reduce this idea of discipleship to a class, to a set of curriculum that you can purchase and accomplish and check off the boxes that I've done it, now I'm on to something else. Because the reality is, is that we have moments in time that we can get to begin in relationship with one another and trying to spur one another on. In Hebrews, it just says, do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some people may have shown hospitality to angels without even knowing it. So the whole idea of we're getting ready, and it's not just in these perfectly packaged moments that we then get to uh, you know, engage in sharpening one another. It could be at any time on a surfacey type level. Just the fact that as, as you are going about your day, you may have moments to interact and, uh, and, and, and sharpen and, and begin this discipleship and move people into this relationship. But then there's also the intentional moments. Uh, real quickly, uh, a good friend of mine, I'm pulling out my phone because there's a text message that he sent me. Uh, a good friend of mine named, named Sean, uh, before this morning, he sent me this text. He said, good morning, bud. I'm praying for you this morning. May the wisdom of God fill your mind. May the voice of God be heard through your words, and may he use you to share his message to continue to transform our church. Love you, bro. That, aw. <laughs> that meant the world to me because he took that intentional moment to say, hey, God's using you. Uh, I pray that he speaks through you. And again, that as we're preparing and getting uh, ready together, that we take steps that are in alignment, that we are moving in the same direction together. And so he, he, he took that intentional moment just to say, yes, move forward with this. Uh, and then lastly, to have vulnerable moments. John says, greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. Because it's not just as we prepare, as we prepare ourselves it's not just coming alongside somebody and saying, hey, don't forget, we're preparing. We're moving forward. We're doing this. That's good. That's intentional. But it's also for me to say, I need help. I need, I need uh, others around me to speak into my life, to correct my thinking when I've gone astray, to remind me that I can't be asking out other girls. And all the behaviors that come along with that. And I need to be, have an open and willingness to just uh, invite that in. And so as we, uh, as we get ready to close, um, a couple things I want you just to hear. And I hope that you uh, take this to heart. When it comes to the church making disciples, it is not curriculum. It is relational. And you are not proving something to a staff or pastors or this church or, or this world. 
You are preparing. You are getting ready. You are clothing yourself with fine linens so that we can present ourselves to the one who called us out, to the one who said, I love you and we'll be together forever. You are preparing for eternity. You are not just preparing to prove something here on earth. You are not measured or judged by these things that we do as we sharpen one another. You are loved. That is the motivation behind why we change our behavior. Can you imagine if I tried to engage with my wife through a curriculum that I got an A on? I said, see, honey, I passed the test, I'm good. No, it's the, the, the measure of our love is, is not measured by the things that uh, can be, you know, accounted for on paper. It's as we, as we engage with one another, as we continually uh, enter in and out of uh, arguments that draw us closer together, as we uh, grow and move forward, those are the things that drive us, is that we have love for one another. And you are not alone. We were meant to do this together. You are not supposed to just be out on an island studying your Bible and saying that you know everything about God and what does it mean to be in relationship with Him because we get to live out our relationship with God with one another. Remember I told you that it's this great mystery that all of us together make up the bride of Christ? And so it's important how we behave with one another. It's important how we talk to one another. It's important that we take this call to make disciples as something bigger than just trying to accomplish more attenders than the church down the street. That's not what it's about. It's important that my engagement and, and interaction with you speaks to how we are preparing for something that is eternal. And that is awesome. So as we get ready to uh, go to the table and just respond by taking communion, I want you to try to think maybe a little bit differently about how you even take communion. When, uh, when, when I got married, uh, and many of you that are married, you, you have probably said similar vows like, till death do us part. For richer for better, richer or poorer, for better or for worse. We said those things to each other. Now, in this great, uh, mysterious, uh, eternal engagement proposal that Christ has offered us, he said, not even death will separate us. Nothing can separate us. In our vows that we give with our spouses here on earth, we give ourselves an out till death do us part. And Christ says, not even that. I have conquered death. And even death won't separate us. And so as you come to the table, I would encourage you to feel and hear 
the love of God saying, will you have me? I've conquered death. I've prepared a place for you. Will you have me? And for those of you that have already said yes, that as you uh, participate in the bread and the, and the cup, you would be reminded that you are preparing yourself. You are getting ready. And for those of you that have not accepted that invitation, can I encourage you to hear that, to hear and feel that invitation that you are loved so much that you are desired to be in eternity within relationship with Christ that has conquered death and said not even death can separate us, that you would say yes, I will have you. And that as you participate in communion, that you would know that you are not alone and that you have a multitude of people that will come alongside you and say, let's go. You got a lot to do. You got to get ready. Would you join me in praying? God, thank you for this opportunity yet again just to be together as your church. God, I, uh, I know I'm reminded even in, in just being able to, to share from your word just how immense your love is for us. Uh, and God, I, I pray that our, our, our hearts and mind would begin to think differently when it comes to making disciples. That we could see them in the context of relationship with you. See that within the context of preparing ourselves to be united with you for eternity. And then that begins to shape our behavior, God. We ask that you would make that true of us, God. That you would be the driver and the motivating force behind how and when and why we would change our behavior to reflect this great invitation to the wedding supper. And so God, make this true of us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.